0: welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a show for SaaS founders and product people. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and in this season, we talk about user onboarding with fellow founders and guest experts. Our guest today is the amazing Samuel Hulick, who operates at useronboard.com, and he's an amazing UX consultant who holds number one mental place in our minds when it comes to actual user onboarding that's exactly the topic for our conversation today. This show is brought to you by UserList, the best way for SaaS founders to send onboarding emails, segment your users based on events, and see where your customers get stuck in the product. Start your free trial today at userlist.com. Hi, Samuel.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're absolutely excited. Um, couldn't be happier to have you among the guests for this new show. So in case someone who listens to us doesn't know who what you do and who you are, can you give us an overview and a little bit of your background story?
1: Sure thing. It depends on how far back you want to go. I initially started in the world of software as a developer and then decided to really focus on user experience instead about 10 years ago. And after diving really far into user experience at the time, uh, I realized that user onboarding is a really important and and especially at the time was a really overlooked part of the overall user experience of software offering. And so I decided to focus specifically on that and created the website User Onboard, where I uh, provided a slideshow, teardown tours of, of how different apps are approaching their onboarding experience with commentary. And also wrote a book, The Elements of User Onboarding. And I, I imagine that's what led me to, to be here today in, in, in large part.
0: Yes, this book has been out for ages. It was like my uh, number one resource Ages ago, when it came to like user onboarding learning and everything. So, tell us more. What are the fundamental principles that you preach in your practice and in your book?
1: Well, in my practice, and especially as you mentioned, the book is about, I think, six years old, maybe a little bit past the six year point. And so, we are working on a second edition and updating things because holy cow, do screenshot examples get. <laughs> old looking very fast when it comes to <laughs> the pace of digital uh, innovation. But uh, yeah, so the, the book I do I do uh, look want to update very shortly, but my general principles regarding onboarding in the book or when I work with people directly is to really focus on two main things. One is the business outcome that you want to get out of somebody signing up for your product. In presumably some form of revenue, most likely. And so, thinking about the performance of your onboarding in terms of how it's actually generating business outcomes for yourself, I think is really important. And then, on the flip side of that, especially for those who have more of a UX background, going, what about the users? I also strongly recommend focusing on making sure that your users receive this sort of outcomes that they're seeking that's driving them to sign up for your product to begin with. And the more that you can focus your onboarding experience as a piece of the puzzle in helping your users become successful and also in the process generating business results for yourself, uh, that's really the mindset that I recommend. And and there's a lot to break down there, but, but at a high level, those are the areas that I really recommend placing the emphasis of your attention on.
0: There was this picture that you made that went viral Years ago, with Mario and a little flower and the Mario that gets bigger. And ultimately, the user is buying a big Mario, not the flower. Was it a flower or mushroom? Uh, what was it? Yeah, flower. Flower. Uh, <laughs> flower. So t- the us- mushroom
1: makes them big, but the flower <laughs> makes them throw fireballs.
0: <laughs> yes. Tell us more how you came up with this concept and if it still holds up today.
1: Yeah, well, I I mean, I would say that the concept certainly holds up to this point, and and I think it's boy, I'm not, I'm not sure how to best describe it. Well, I'll explain the concept itself first, and then we'll decide how worthwhile it is. But the idea is that users come to your product or customers come to your business for some form of transformation, where they are struggling with something or incapable of doing something, and they want to affect change of some sort in their lives, and they think that your product can help them do that if they integrate your offering into their own change-seeking processes. And so in the case of the little Mario, if you've played the Mario video game, you start out little, and if you run around and touch anything, then you just die, and it's a stressful existence. But if you encounter the Fire Flower within the, the context of the game, then your character grows big. And and if you get touched by somebody else, it's not that big of a deal and you can throw fireballs. And it's a much more enjoyable mode of existence. And in that similar way, whenever people are coming to engage with an offering that you provide, they're always seeking some improvement to their lives in some fashion. And to focus more on delivering the improvement to their lives than to deliver the offering itself, like in the form of the fire flower versus being able to throw fireballs. My recommendation is is very much to focus on the fireball throwing, so to speak. And as far as how relevant it is, I would say to whatever degree it was relevant a few years ago, I, it's uh, probably still just as relevant now. I, I, I truly think our whole industry could benefit by focusing even more on the outcomes that we're generating and the, and the results that we're providing to our users and, and making sure that we're affording them the kind of life and benefits that they're actually looking for and making good on our end of the deal in that regard.
0: You've been recently focusing on a new or relatively new concept called value paths. So I've seen you speak on the topic and it's absolutely amazing. Could you give us an overview of this uh, approach to user onboarding?
1: Sure. It, it is still something I'm still working on and I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to best get my, my elevator pitch of it down. But the general idea is that along the lines of what we've been talking about, very similarly, like even using the the Mario and Fireflower kind of terminology... The idea is that people are always engaging anytime somebody engages with your product, either the first time that they ever sign up or any follow-up visits that they might make or any sort of contact that they have with your user experience touch points at any point in their life is almost certainly going to be prompted by them pursuing some form of change in their lives. Like if if I pull up Google Maps, I'm trying to understand how to get somewhere or to see how long it would take to get there or to decide which mode of travel I want to take. Or if I'm using Airbnb, it's because I want to probably place a booking somewhere or offer my own house to be available. And these are motivations that are driven by trying to affect some sort of change in someone's experience of reality, so to speak. And my strong recommendation is to focus on the outcomes that people are seeking and get really, really good at delivering those rather than focusing on creating an abstract concept of a software product, quote unquote, and then trying to figure out how to sell it to people. So that's, that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, but ultimately looking at if you want to be really good at delivering outcomes, what sort of framework and process can you use to figure out how to best invest your time and resources and making that happen for people? And also, how can you tell that it's actually working for your business as well?
0: I love the part of that concept where you showed how a big value path is broken into a few sequential interactions and each of them also has a beginning and an outcome. So could you tell us more about that?
1: Sure. So I think in the, the presentation you saw, the example that I used was making pancakes, where <laughs> if somebody wants to make pancakes, they might be starting from a number of different positions where maybe they are they just woke up and their child is asking them to make pancakes for them, or maybe they have an interest in going to a new brunch place and they have pancakes on their mind when they go there. But there's still, in terms of outcomes, there's a the before state where somebody is desiring pancakes to be made. And then there's the after state where you have pancakes. And the process of making pancakes is what helps you transition from the before state of wanting them to the after state of having them. And that process can take a number of different forms. And it's really a question of what happens in between those two different states that determines what the process is. So if I want to take cash and my car keys and turn those into pancakes, that would involve driving to a restaurant and ordering them. But if I want to turn pancake mix and water into pancakes, then that would be a process of going through a a very different workflow to arrive at pancakes, where I'd be whisking the batter and heating up the stove and pouring it onto the griddle and things along those lines. So the idea being that everyone's pursuing outcomes in the kind of a jobs to be done type sense. If your listeners are familiar with that concept, I know you've interviewed lots of jobs to be done aficionados. So hopefully so. But the idea being there are multiple different, kind of a different paths to the top of the same mountain, sort of a concept where the outcomes that people are seeking are sort of like the jobs and the way that they achieve those jobs is what ultimately you want to be placing your design attention around, because that's the that's the fire flower that turns people into a fire throwing Mario, so to speak.
0: Great that you mentioned jobs to be done. It's absolutely a very viable a framework. And one of the uh, recent influencers that really affected the way I'm thinking about the method was Jim Kalback. And we're going to link to that in the show notes. And he also has a wonderful book, which is concise, practical, and uh, also great reading. Thanks for bringing that up. I wonder after, I wonder after many years of uh, doing consulting specifically in this niche of user onboarding, have you developed your own, you know, understanding what an ideal user onboarding look looks like, or is it always like a journey from scratch that you discover? Yeah, of course you do that, but still, do you have your own, you know, uh, ways of successfully doing what you're hired for?
1: I hope so. (laughs) I've been been working. I've been working at it. So, (laughs) my for my client's sake, if nothing else, I hope that's the case. (laughs) But, but yeah, I mean, my my own take on it largely is it's changed a little over the years as as people's approach to onboarding and their concept of onboarding has grown more sophisticated, which I've been really happy to see. But I've still noticed a general pattern where when people are approaching an onboarding project. There's just a world of a difference in mindset if you are looking at onboarding as being the intro tour to your product versus looking at onboarding as being a whole system of accomplishment that you're putting in place that's helping drive positive outcomes for your users and positive outcomes for your business. And if you're thinking about it just as, well, we're thinking about a tooltip tour, should we use app queues? should we use X, Y, or Z... Uh, I don't have a whole lot to help people with in that regard. There are different design patterns that they can look at and consider. But the question really is, like, even if you go into a design pattern like like a progress meter or a to-do list, uh, or even just think about a lifecycle email sequence that you want to send out to people uh, after they sign up, the real question isn't, what shape are the rectangles of the different screen components that you're providing to people in the form that those different design patterns are taking, but like, what are the things that are that the design patterns are getting people to do in the first place? If you're giving somebody a to-do list with five different options, those steps and activities that the to-do list is encouraging people to do is going to have way more bearing on whether they're successful or not than the presentation of the to-do list itself. And I find that a lot of times people get caught up in wanting to add design pattern A or B or C, but aren't thinking about what are the underlying, almost like like choreography for in a, in a dance where there's like one step and then another step and then another step. You want to be thinking about it in a very similar sense when somebody signs up for your product, how can you help coordinate their actions to guide them to a place of success rather than just giving them a tour that they have to click next through 17 times or something like that.
0: What's your recommendations on how founders and product people can measure the user's success and progress inside the application? Because it's it's a delicate balance between privacy, but also having an idea what the user's progress is. So do you have any common recommendations for your clients and or for our listeners?
1: As far as how to go about detecting whether success has happened or not? Yeah. Yeah. I would say... The the where my mind immediately goes is I think that the the point where it becomes complex and, and perhaps confusing for a lot of people, myself included, is when you try to when you start with the user actions that are already taking place within your product and try to figure out which of those might be most meaningful or most strongly correlated with conversion or retention or just good things happening in general. And my recommendation would would really be to take a step back and kind of forget about your product for a second, and just get really in tune with the big life changes that are driving people to sign up for your product and to use it on an in an ongoing basis, and really understand what success looks like in their eyes. And and not that you can provide totally white glove concierge help to every single person who signs up for your product, but if you pay attention to these in a, in a rigorous kind of in like a studious fashion you, uh, it becomes very clear, very often, uh, different patterns of what people are looking for. And you can say, oh, let's say we have an invoice sending software. A lot of times people will sign up because they are about to get their first client and they want to look good. And therefore they want to send a professional invoice. Or maybe somebody else is signing up for invoice sending software because the person who manages invoices at the company just left and all that's sitting there is a desktop folder with a bunch of Word documents that nobody knows how to even open or something. And those imply very different successful outcomes. And so if you can identify a pattern and think of one to build around, it makes it very easy to reverse engineer what kind of workflow should lead up to that and how you can be most helpful. And it also becomes something where it is inherently measurable because it's something that you're actively assisting people with. That was kind of a vague answer to your question but that that philosophically speaking that's where I come from does that does that work or it
0: definitely does I'm going to quote one of your tweets here and you said something like segmentation or segmented onboarding is uh, the crack mm-hmm. cocaine of successful uh, adoption or user onboarding was that something you said
1: <laughs> Yeah I think it might have been conversion crack cocaine <laughs> right right that's <laughs> uh, right if, uh, that's if I'm right. not mistaken <laughs> Yeah, I think that was based off of a Patrick McKenzie tweet or something along those lines. But the idea being, oh, yeah, because it it was uh, Patrick McKenzie on Twitter was talking about a technique that he used uh, to, uh, to his benefit with the bingo card creator software, where he's like, if somebody's searching for Halloween bingo cards, and that's the term that comes through, and it's October 28th, maybe default to showing the Halloween bingo cards. And just kind of curating and customizing the experience that someone has based off of ambient parameters that might imply what it is that they're looking for and and make some judicious decisions on how to set uh sensible defaults in 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 their path and so that's sort of like a really lo-fi version of of segmented onboarding especially you know you're not just going to have halloween bingo cards and things like that but the idea still holds true where if people are coming into your product from a particular landing page or promotion or an advertisement that you're running, and you can pass those, that information along to the account that someone creates, your software can do- deal with them in a way that's just fundamentally more attentive and more resonant with what they're trying to do than just giving them the same one-size-fits-all onboarding experience that uh, everybody else would get. So strong recommendation there to really consider how, what are the little indicators at the beginning that you can pay the most attention to that really strongly imply that someone's looking for one kind of success or another. And then how do you, when you have somebody locked into a particular lane like that, locked in is not a, that's not the term that I meant to use. That, that was a little overly <laughs> constraint oriented. But once you have an idea of what they're looking for, how can you uh, customize the path that you're setting out in front of them to make it super likely that they arrive at what they're trying to arrive at.
0: Based on the example of the invoicing software, what would you think of uh, self-segmentation? Let's say one of the welcome screens, uh, one of the sign-up screens would be like, tell us what, what the story is. Are you going to do invoicing yourself? Are you looking to delegate it to your assistants, etc.?" Is it an effective measure to self-segment users?
1: I, that's interesting. That's not a term that I, I had heard before, and as the the concept I find to be resonant, and like the idea of letting people drive and and offer up the information, and like you know, kind of choose their own adventure towards success, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, on the other hand, just to maybe play devil's advocate a little bit, I would say that it's probably shouldn't be the user's job to segment themselves. Ideally, you want this to be something almost like it's a magic trick where they might be providing a little bit of information and it results in something that, hey, how did you even know that's what I wanted? Kind of a thing. Um, I would much prefer to offer that kind of experience than having someone go in like, yes, I am this and I'm looking for this and I would prefer to have it in this way or whatever. Um, And wherever possible to just kind of, Create that magical UX delight stuff that people talk about so much, <laughs> but uh, but but make it really targeted to them.
0: Have you seen much of that delight in real life? Because it sounds sounds amazing in theory. However, in practice, founders are always having limited resources, and therefore, sure. like going down that path is always like not the first thing to do on the to-do list. Mm. Have you seen much of of that delightful segmentation or customization in some existing products?
1: Well, the, the, the funny thing there is it's hard to tell if you're ah. being segmented <laughs> or not. And so <laughs> ideally, if you don't know, then that's kind of the best. And so nothing immediately comes to mind or I can't think of any like really prominent case studies that I've recently seen. Uh, but at the same time, I know that there are really subtle ways that you can uh, get people to 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 help understand how to best coordinate your assistance with what they're trying to do. Um, And and so like one example that comes to mind is I remember years and years and years ago, MailChimp had a uh, one question, it was like a screen with a number of different questions and it was one of many screens in an onboarding experience. So it was really tucked away in there. But the question was basically asking if, uh, how many people are currently subscribed to their email list if they have one already. And when you think about the different valuable outcomes that can arise from signing up with MailChimp, you might have somebody on the one hand who's like, got a, just opened a hair salon and wanted to just start building up, have, have an email list for people to sign up for. Or alternatively, it could be somebody who's working at a giant agency that manages email lists in the millions and millions for a whole number of different corporate clients. And those people are going to have very different Needs when it comes to segmenting and creating a, you know, curating a delightful experience around helping them achieve what they're looking to do. Uh, But in by MailChimp, just paying attention to what someone said when with how many subscribers they currently had, they could provide wildly different recommendations going forward based off of that without the person really connecting the dots and understanding that that particular answer is what set them up on that track. So just paying attention to like the more peripherally available things, also the where they are in the world, what time of day it is. There, there are a lot of different ambiently available pieces of information that we can use to try to create the most helpful offering in the given moment to the user that we can.
0: So in your consulting practice, I'm sure you're measuring your results before you step in and after you do the, the consulting magic with your clients. Have there been... Any occasions, and of course, I know they have to be confidential, but have there been any cases when the results uh, numbers have been just phenomenal? And what were the methods that led to that success?
1: Sure, well, as you mentioned just a, a moment ago, the growth centric numbers that that user onboarding and conversion uh, center around can be highly sensitive for most companies out there. so as far as uh, specific cases that i can that I can personally touch on I, I don't have a lot that I can share publicly right here, but as far as just the general principles that that I have seen work the best that are I think the most repeatable or the most universally applicable. One big one is to just go in and measure week over week, how many people signed up, and then of those people, how many went on to achieve whatever successful outcome you're seeking to improve. So it could be first revenue if you're looking for a business outcome or whatever the user's outcome might be. But at the very least, if we're looking at this strictly from a business standpoint, certainly looking at... The conversion percentage of people who signed up in a given week and how many of those people went on to first revenue is is a in my mind a no brainer to look at uh, if profitability is is an area of uh, focus for the company. Um, <laughs> and then
0: that'll be a weird <laughs> company if it wasn't, right? <laughs> right. Well, you'd think so. Yeah. This
1: is it's a, it's a funny industry we're in, but uh, but yeah. So if you're interested in profitability, looking at how efficiently and effectively you're turning your signups into at the beginning of revenue generation for, I'm getting a little off on a tangent here, but if you think about like when I, when I started focusing on user onboarding, I thought of signups as being an inherently good and valuable thing where, Oh, you're getting this many signups this week. If you can get even more next week, that's going to mean even better things for your business, so on and so forth. But when you really look at the economics of it uh, and you think in terms of like your CAC to LTV ratio, CAC being, the cost of acquiring a customer, LTV being the lifetime value of a customer, the user is arriving at your doorstep when they create their account or when they first become a customer as a negative asset. That's debt that you need to convert into revenue because you've already invested the cost of acquiring that customer upfront and you need to have them pay themselves off in hopefully short order in order for you to be able to generate profit from them. And so just looking week over week, how effective are we getting at turning the sunk cost of a new signups CAC into the, the beginning of them starting to pay their LTV, and at least with the generating their first revenue, I think is a really important number for people to look at. So that's one thing. And then another major thing uh, when we're just talking about data is looking at the steps that have to take place in between those two events. So if somebody creates their account and then two weeks later they convert to paid, what happened in between and what especially are the required steps that everybody has to go through to get from one state to the other? Because that lets you see not only the big conversion percentage between the uh, signing up and first revenue, but you can also see where your people are surviving or where the attrition is taking place in between those two steps as well. And that really gives you a lever to figure out how to bring that conversion percentage up.
0: Sometimes the, that path to receiving value is kind of clear, more or less linear and you can you can figure out what the default steps are, but sometimes you are providing a more complex tool and the possibilities are endless and you're not even 100% sure what success looks like. I don't know if people sign up for uh, Adobe, what's the name of it now? Creative Suite. like.
1: Yeah, I was actually, it's funny. I was just going to say Photoshop <laughs> is the example I always yes. use. So yeah, <laughs> we're, we're right on the same page.
0: Exactly. So I'm still paying for that, for the CC. Creative cloud that is, but (laughs) yeah, it has like 60 tools inside. I once watched a, a YouTube video that had an overview of all the amazing tools they offer. So how do you even promote success in these vague conditions?
1: Yeah, well, if I then it's it's something I've actually thought a lot about because I'm always like, but what about Photoshop? Like, what would I do with onboarding if I was in charge of Photoshop? Uh, so it's very convenient that you that you happen to touch on like my own personal devil's advocate question to myself. But the general conceptual framework that I would be working within would be to say, yes, absolutely, Photoshop is way too complicated and complex for us to be able to say. And clearly core user value happens when people do one very specific thing. It's going to look very different for a whole bunch of different people. And to try to even like force people down a particular pathway, uh, I, don't, I, I don't advocate forcing people down pathways even under the best of circumstances. So I certainly wouldn't recommend it in, in, in there either. But what I would do if I was in Photoshop's shoes is I would think about how much I could alleviate the educational need in the moment that somebody is first using the product by spreading that education out through time and offering it earlier in that user's experience with our offering or our brand or whatever you might call that by creating an ecosystem of Photoshop tutorials and videos and walkthroughs and looking to leverage a community to get people introduced to it and getting them up to speed and so on and so forth so that you don't have to have like your product tour solve all of that for everybody Every time. And then also on the back end, providing more. And by back end, I mean chronologically after somebody creates their account, offering ongoing, for example, email courses or or drip feeds that people can subscribe to or any sort of continuing education that you can and try to pull that educational demand from the middle of the experience which is somebody creating their account and and entering into photoshop for the first time and either f- fill it up earlier in the process or later and just let them focus specifically on getting up to speed with the product while they're in it without trying to be overly prescriptive in that regard and and especially if i was in photoshop's case uh, shoes i would i would probably try to have less onboarding than most people would Uh, because I would want to take a step back and just let the, the interface and the, and the tool set speak for itself and let people navigate their own way through it, rather than trying to have a bunch of hotspots and arrows pointing to different things that might be relevant to them, but might are probably only relevant to 5%, 10% of the people who are actually going to be using the product in reality.
0: There are some products, and uh, Userlist itself is one of those. When onboarding a successful one involves actual human work being done, and that, in addition to providing helpful information, there isn't much else you can do to like stimulate that activity. Really, like nudging people forever is not a method. So, what is the alternative to like? What can you do to even encourage people?
1: Over email specifically, or or how do what's the what's the human powered part you're thinking of there, like setting it up, or
0: well, Userless is just one of the examples of the product when there needs to be a developer who steps in and does the integration, and then there's the founder or the marketer who who writes actual emails, and of course we do have templates and everything, but they still need to do that, and we have a lot of fellow SaaS founders who are struggling with the same kind of uh, angle that there there needs. There's work that needs to be done. How do you stimulate that creative work for people when they have so many circumstances surrounding them, and um, problems, and uh, lack of time, and wh- whatever or not?
1: Sure. Well, the the short answer is to take as much work off of their plate as possible. That that's uh-huh. the that's the whole point of providing <laughs> <laughs> automation and you know the leveraging technology to extend their capabilities and so on and so forth. So, assuming that that's not on the table, my recommendation, or at least maybe to to rephrase, to figure out what it is that you should be taking off of people's plates and where that friction really lies and what is pulling people away from making progress is I would recommend, and I, and I don't mean to be too too self-promotional here, but from a value path standpoint, look at the outcome of a fully set... Of, like In your case, user list, I think, would really thrive when somebody had sent their first email or set up their first automation or something like that. And, and then when that was actually sent and arrived in the person's inbox, and then something good happened because of that. That's probably like the real user value that you want to be generating. And so if you think about what do you have to do, what, or not what do you have to do, what happen, what does reality have to do to transition someone from someone who just signed up for UserList to some person uh, who encountered the, their automation having some sort of positive response that the person who signed up to UserList originally finds out about... A whole bunch of th- different things have to happen. And very similar to the idea of making pancakes and how, how part of making pancakes might be whisking the batter or heating up the, the stove or pouring it onto the griddle or things like that. Each of those steps are broken down and can be broken down into components unto themselves and in a similar way, exactly like you just mentioned with user list somebody there's going to be the developmental accomplishment of having to just get the integration set up and thinking about what actually just has to happen in order for that to take place it's got to be posted to the code base the code base has to be pushed to production the you know your your bot has to contact the thing to confirm that it actually went Through and then the person has to see that the green light came on that says, hey, we're validated and connected, now we can move on to the next step. And that's just like one little piece of the pie. That's not even writing compelling material or deciding what like a customized segmentation automated flow should look like to begin with. And so I mean it's all it's a whole lot. And when we try to think of how to create like patterns of rectangles in the form of wireframes that will like help this whole process come to be. It's just profoundly amazing to me that that's something that people do Almost like in a, in a fraction of a second in their own minds, where you're thinking about, well, somebody's got to write the, the email and somebody else has to send it and we got to tell if it's if the, the integration is valid or not. And all of these things have to come together, but we're looking at like submit buttons and, and input fields and stuff like that. So to really focus on how the process itself unfolds and how it actually occurs in reality, and then decide what our product direction should be to me is is a, a very strong recommendation rather than looking at the product that we want to build and then trying to figure out what good it is. It's almost like, building like building a key and then going to door to door to try to figure out which one it fits into. You really want to be fitting into the outcomes that people are seeking to begin with and try to augment their experience with that as much as possible.
0: That seems to be such a recurring topic uh, in, in Jim Kalbach's job uh, to be done book. Uh, he keeps repeating the same thing that people are not looking to interact with your product. They're not looking for success in your product. They're looking for success in life. And therefore, you keep re- repeating the same theme again and again that uh, don't try to find use cases for a product.
1: Yeah, exactly. You, you really you want to identify, I mean, in my opinion, and this is how I approach my own work as well, in my own uh, plans that I have for user onboard and beyond, is to really focus on the outcomes that people are wanting and then figure out what the most valuable process we can put together or not value, most helpful process we can put together to lead to that valuable outcome would be rather than starting out thinking of a really cool process for people to engage in and then hope that maybe they got some sort of outcome at it, uh, out of it at the end. People really, you, you don't want to build a bridge to nowhere. You want to help people get to a particular place. You don't want them to be like, this bridge is amazing. I just wish it went somewhere. I wanted it to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As we're wrapping up today's episode, Give us two ultimate tips uh, for our listeners. One do and one don't for user onboarding.
1: Sure. So one do that I would recommend very strongly when it comes to user onboarding is to, once again, this is a recurring theme here just within the conversation, but to really think about it in terms of how you can create systems that make your users successful and successful on their own terms, not on your terms. You don't want to create a system that helps people successfully become your customer because nobody's trying to become your customer. They're trying to do something. And and through that process, it might require that they become your customer, but that's not the motivation for them. Uh, Or you're just amazingly lucky, I guess. But I've never seen a business that operates that way. So in, in a similar sense, not only your business model, but your onboarding in particular can really pay dividends if you're focusing that around... Identifying what people are trying to do and helping them get there, rather than showing off all the cool different aspects of your product that you're so excited to show them. That's my big do. My big don't is don't use tooltip tours. They're they're trash. I've never seen a tooltip tour increase conversions ever in my life. I've been studying this for almost a decade now. Uh, I I I only ever see them break things or break up the user's flow. So strong recommendation. Friends don't like friends use tooltip tours.
0: Oh, I love that. And let's just spend another 20 seconds clarifying why because autonomy and the autonomous onboarding experience is much more important, right? Giving people freedom to experience what they want.
1: Exactly. It's not even, you know, it's not your freedom to give to them. It's this it's an inherent thing that they that's just a fact of reality when someone visits your your product and with digital experiences, somebody can close the tab or click back or turn their phone off. And that's it for everything that you've set all of this up for. And it's it's a very small thing in the span of someone's life to to try a new product and have it either work out or not. The notion of getting people to that place of success is is very important, but you got to meet them on their terms, not impose your definition of success on them.
0: There was one book you recommended on Twitter once, Why People Do What They Do, I think or what, why we do why, what we do?
1: I think why we do what we do. Yes. Yeah. The, the um. self-determination theory. Yep. And that speaks to the point that you were mentioning regarding autonomy just now, no, recognizing that people are motivated to do particular things. And it, instead of trying to coerce or control their behavior, to look at it from their perspective and figure out how you can supplement their behavior and helping them do what they want to do, rather than coercing them or persuading them into doing what you want them to do. The more that if you if you can identify something that is really pulling people, an outcome that really is motivational to people and that is commonly experienced that you can be there and be helpful to people with, then you can integrate your business value into that as a part of it but nobody's going to do the opposite where they're pursuing their value as a part of being in a relationship with your business or something like that it's it's totally backwards if you look at it that way and and similarly speaking if you look at a lot of conversion metrics like pirate metrics a a a r r r kind of uh what is it or acquisition activation retention referral and revenue all of those are myopically predicated as being on the the company's perspective that you are imposing this relationship is set entirely by our terms we acquired you and now you are going to be activated and then you can refer us or pay us money or continue working with us but like if if i signed up for mailchimp like we were talking about before i wouldn't be like oh like hey samuel how's your newsletter project coming like hey, pretty good. I'm in the retention phase of my relationship with MailChimp right now. Like That has <laughs> nothing to do with what I'm trying to accomplish. And so to me, the whole idea is to really to get as clear and formalized as pirate metrics is for business success and get exactly that much level of sophistication applied to understanding what the users are trying to do and just totally owning one particular pathway to value that people are commonly seeking.
0: That's amazing advice. I'm so glad somebody is bringing down the pirate metrics because yes, like <laughs> how, how little control do we have as founders over people moving on through that path, right? Like zero control, in fact.
1: Yep. Yep. There are no levers there. You can you can trick people into proceeding or you can just help them get to where they're trying to go. And I, I strongly prefer the latter over the former.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much, Samuel. This advice was amazing. If people want to follow you online and read more of what you do and listen more, where can they go? Everything
1: right now is through user onboard. So dot com.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.
1: It was a genuine pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you found the episode useful, please spread the word about this new show on Twitter, mentioning UserList, or leave us a review on iTunes.